by the late 90s, early 2000s, you're kind of taking your internet for granted. If you ask kids today what an internet provider is, nobody knows. Because the internet is just a thing that exists like water, you know, comes out of the tap. You just turn the tap and there it is, right? People don't talk about the water company, the power company that much. It just is a thing. It's what you do with the internet that became much more interesting to me at that point. And that, you know, has led me into online education and AI and satellites and a lot of other cool applications that I'm working on now. That was entrepreneur and investor Sky Dayton talking about the technologies he's currently interested in pursuing. As you heard him explain, he's focused on building things on top of the internet. That includes everything from a billion-dollar edtech startup to an IoT device acquired by Amazon to electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. In other words, he's had some impressive entrepreneurial successes, but none of those successes would be possible without easy access to the internet, which is something most people these days take for granted. However, that wasn't the case when Sky was getting started on his entrepreneurial journey. Instead, the first time he wanted to connect his computer to the internet, it took him a week to get the configuration right. So before Sky could build all the things he's helped build on top of the internet, he first had to make the internet easy to access. He did it by building Earthlink, one of the world's largest and most successful early internet service providers. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters, the podcast that explores entrepreneurship by talking with some of the internet's most impactful early innovators. I'm the host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I study the history of the internet. Of course, as you just heard this episode's guest mention, these days accessing the internet is about as easy as turning on a faucet. However, it took lots of people and lots of hard work to turn internet access into something that's, well, pretty boring. But don't worry, the story of how internet access became boring isn't actually boring, and we're going to hear some of that story today by talking with Sky Dayton, founder of ISP Behemoth Earthlink. But before we do that, I want to tell you about another great opportunity all of you listening right now have because of Sky Dayton and all the work he did helping make the internet so darn easy to access. This episode of Webmasters is being brought to you thanks to the support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and or sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. Those include things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, Amazon FBAs, content websites, and any of the other numerous types of online businesses that exist thanks to the internet. If you've got a profitable internet business and are thinking about selling it, be sure to contact the Latonas team because they've got a huge audience of interested buyers just waiting for the perfect opportunity. And if you're looking to buy an internet business, you can head over to the Latonas website and see all the listings of businesses being sold. You can buy any of them right now. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. I've told you that this episode's guest, Sky Dayton, builds lots of successful things on the internet. To explain just how successful, I feel compelled to share some of the highlights. 
In addition to being founder of Earthlink, Sky founded Boingo, the global wireless internet provider. He founded eCompanies, which has incubated multiple other companies that went on to have nine-figure acquisitions. He's also a key investor or advisor to another collection of internet and tech companies with a combined valuation well into the many billions of dollars. Seriously, go check out this guy's LinkedIn profile when you have a few minutes. You will be simultaneously amazed and jealous of what he's done. A big part of how he's accomplished so much is that he started really young. In fact, Sky first learned to code back in 1980 when he was nine years old and computers weren't common household items. So how does a nine-year-old get access to computers in 1980? Well, it helps to have a grandfather who was a famous and highly respected early computer scientist named David DeWitt. I was introduced to computers when I was nine years old by my grandfather, who was an IBM fellow. He was working at the company as one of their top engineers, and he brought me to an IBM facility uh, in Palo Alto. And at the time, you know, this is in the 1980 timeframe, it was a room with a bunch of whirring tape drives and machines making loud noises. And he told me what these computers were doing. And it just completely captured my imagination. And what was so interesting about 1980s computers to a nine-year-old? I just thought that there was an incredible possibility in this room. Like you could program these things to process information. To Now, at the time, to be fair, our imagination about what computers might do, and this extended later to the internet, was pretty shallow. Like, you know, if you ask Bill Gates, in the early 80s, hey, what can a PC do in the home? He's like, well, it can help you with your taxes or it can organize your recipes or it's pretty basic. The kinds of stuff we do today with computer technology, we just had no idea. Maybe it's like if you ask Thomas Edison, hey, uh, and not comparing myself to Thomas Edison here, but if you asked him what will people do with electricity, um, I doubt they would have answered autonomous cars or something, right? Uh, <laughs> but I just thought that there's something wonderful here. And I started playing with computers that my grandfather helped me get into. And then my first computer was a Timex Sinclair ZX81, which had a membrane keypad and one kilobyte of memory. And you could pay $200 and get this 16 kilobyte memory extension pack that had its own power supply. I didn't own a television at the time. So my dad went out and went to Sears and bought a black and white TV, which we hooked this computer up to. And I used it to program games and Every time I wanted to play a game, I'd have to program it. And then when I shut it off, everything would be erased. So eventually I figured out you could get a tape recorder and you could connect it. And so I had these cassette tapes where my little games that I programmed in basic were recorded. And if I wanted to play them, I could, you know, put the cassette tape in and then load the game. And that's crazy. You were doing that when you were nine years old? Sort of nine to 11, that period. You know, that was my sort of seminal computer moment. So, coding computers at nine. I don't remember what I was doing when I was nine years old, but it definitely wasn't that. Sky would graduate from high school when he was just 16, and along with computers, he had a healthy passion for the visual arts, a byproduct of growing up with parents who were both artists. Those two passions combined to form a teenager who was unusually skilled with digital graphics. So skilled, in fact, that as a teenager, he wound up running digital design departments for a couple of California-based ad agencies. I got really excited and into computer graphics and desktop publishing specifically 
in the uh, late 80s and early 90s as I was coming out of high school and worked at ad agencies in the very early days of this desktop publishing revolution. It used to be if you were, you know, wanted to make a, let's say, an ad for a newspaper or a magazine, you would physically cut and paste and take a photograph and then send that photograph off to the magazine. And uh, people were starting to do that on computers, obviously something we totally take for granted today. So I was using Quark Express 1.0 and Adobe Illustrator 1.0 and Photoshop 1.0, literally reading the manuals, figuring out how to do these things and ended up running these ad agencies, computer graphics departments at you know, the age of 17, 18 years old. It's a pretty amazing experience. And while you'd think that running computer graphics departments at ad agencies in the late 1980s would have been the thing that touched off Sky's involvement with the internet, somehow that actually wasn't the case. Instead, his career took an odd twist, but it's a twist that taught Sky a lot about running businesses and the power of bringing people together. So my journey to the internet actually started in in desktop publishing. And then at 19, I got together with a longtime friend that I'd grown up with, and we started a coffee house in West Hollywood called Cafe Mocha that went on to be kind of world famous. And we were 19 years old, decidedly an analog activity, but it gave me an appreciation for this notion of bringing people together, communicating. We have poetry readings and concerts and you know, people would come and write and work there. And it was really neat. And then not long after that, it was probably about two years later, I heard about this thing called the internet. And it was, I can't remember, somebody was telling me, hey, there's this network, it's kind of like the Defense Department designed it to survive a nuclear war, you know, all the computers are connected independently to each other, and you can get connected to this thing, and you can send electronic messages and download files. And it's like, you know, that sounds really interesting. I wonder how I would get connected to that. And I don't know if you remember 411, <laughs> but, you know, you could pick up the phone dial 411 and it's like a yellow pages, somebody would answer. So I said, you know, give me the number for the internet. And the operator's like, I've searched the internet, literally nothing comes up anywhere. All right, well, can we do like a nationwide search for any company with the word internet in their name? And it was nothing. And so it was just this sort of interesting mystery. So how'd you eventually find this mysterious internet thing that you'd been hearing about? Around that time, I'd enrolled in a, a UCLA C programming class. And there was a, a little notice on the bulletin board outside the classroom that said internet and had a phone number for a defense contractor in San Diego that offered connections to students. So I called them up and told them I was, you know, enrolled in this class and asked them what I needed to do. And they said, you know, if I paid, I think it was $2 an hour, they would give me a phone number I could use with a modem and I could connect my computer to the service and get connected to the internet. So great, sign me up. So they mailed me a sheet of paper with a bunch of data on it, which I later learned were things like IP addresses and things like that. And I spent the next week just pounding away on my little Macintosh trying to get it to connect to the internet. I had to download 
the TCP IP software in order to connect. And it was just a whole struggle to get my Mac to get online. When I finally did, I immediately realized, I just remember the moment so viscerally that this is the next mass medium. This is going to be something absolutely huge. And I didn't know what it would be or how, but the experience I'd had was so difficult to get there. I thought, what if I could help make it easier in some way? And thus began a journey that led to Earthlink. This is what we might call Sky's entrepreneurial aha moment. It was the moment that first revealed the insight which would ultimately become his company. I enjoy examining these kinds of moments when entrepreneurs share them because they reveal the inquisitive and somewhat serendipitous nature of entrepreneurial innovation. Specifically, notice what Sky didn't say. He never talked about wanting to be an entrepreneur. In fact, the idea of entrepreneurship never factored into his decision at all, and he would even tell you that this lack of intentionality was a critical part of what ultimately allowed him to become an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is the purest avocation. You start with nothing, you know, and you start with a problem and you figure out a way to solve it. That to me is being an entrepreneur. I think you can be an entrepreneur whether you're starting a company. That's just too narrow a view, though. Uh, you can be an entrepreneur inside your company, uh, your organization, your family. It just means you take full responsibility for finding the solution to a problem and carrying it all the way and making it viable. You don't set out to say, I'm going to be a, a business person, right? You don't set out. You say, what's the impact you want to have on the world by solving what problem? And it turns out that being an entrepreneur a lot of times is the right hat to wear to go do that. But it might be something else, right? And you're going to get a lot more fulfillment out of helping to solve a problem than you are about sort of groping around for identity because it seems cool to be an entrepreneur. Actually, it didn't used to be cool to be an entrepreneur. It used to be a little bit like shady. Like it was the guy getting out of the private jet into his Ferrari with his giant brick cell phone. It says like entrepreneur magazine. You know, that was that was what it meant to be an entrepreneur. Now it's super cool. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, maybe what I just described is cool to people. I think it's cheesy. <laughs> Sky didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. Instead, he saw a problem and wanted to solve it. True, that eventually led him down the path of becoming an entrepreneur, but entrepreneurship was a byproduct, not a goal. In my experience, this is an important distinction because it impacts the strategies budding entrepreneurs use when building their companies. When the goal is to be a successful entrepreneur, the person pursuing the goal tends to focus on building whatever he or she thinks needs to be built, regardless of whether it's something people actually want. In contrast, when the goal is to solve a problem, the thing that gets built is more likely to end up being something other people actually need. This is what happened to Sky. His first inclination was to build a piece of software, but as he explored the problem, he realized he needed to create something else. And because he was more focused on solving the problem than achieving some fanciful vision of becoming a successful entrepreneur, whatever that might mean, he was able to ultimately build something people wanted. My initial idea was actually not to create an internet provider. I thought, well, I'm going to solve this problem through software. I think if I build a software program that allowed a normal person to load a disk into their computer, and 
again, a lot of things we take for granted today, but we'd have things like email and a web browser and you know, a way to download files, very simple. And so I started doing a exploration beginning with the UX and UI, and I designed all the screens for this, this application I wanted to build. And then I had that and I saw, okay, well, the next thing I need is to partner with an internet provider that will actually provide people the connection. So, you know, again, there was no Comcast internet. There was no AT&T internet. There was no, certainly it wasn't wireless. You had to connect with a modem somewhere and somebody needed to provide the phone number that your modem would connect to. That's what the internet provider would do. When I called the internet provider I had, the one in San Diego, I reached the head of the little internet provider and you know, it was, again, connected to a defense contractor that ran this node of the internet. And I said what I wanted to do. And he said, you know, that sounds interesting, but just being completely honest here, I don't want you to you know, spin your wheels and waste your time. Everybody that's ever going to be connected to the internet is already connected to the internet. I don't think there's really any more growth to be had. I just sat there on the phone speechless. I didn't know what to say. (laughs) And then I started calling around to other internet providers. I couldn't get anyone to give me the time of day. And they were all really bad. The ones that were emerging, a horrible customer service. So I just remember I was driving back from my coffee house late one night after late meeting, you know, going over the numbers of the the coffee house and everything. And I still couldn't stop thinking about this. And I remember the song that was playing. It was a, by the band New Order on the radio. And I remember the point I was in the freeway. And I just thought, well, I'm going to have to start an internet provider myself. And no one's doing it. I'm going to do it. And that was the moment Earthlink was born. So that's interesting. As you noted, at the time, most ISPs were small and local and people weren't expecting the internet to scale the way it ultimately has. So were you also focused on being small and local, or did you launch with the goal of building something national? I knew I needed to start small. You know, you got to get going and sort of prove the model. There was also this physical problem, which is you needed to be able to make a local phone call with your computer. So if I had a bank of modems in, you know, let's say Los Angeles, uh, and you were in New York, it was going to cost you a lot of money, even to call from the other side of L.A., was a toll charge where the phone company would charge you by the minute to make that call. So it had to be intensely local. I started in LA because that's where I was and it was a gigantic market. I picked a location that had the largest dialing radius, meaning the largest population could call my modem bank and have it be a local call. But I very much had national ambitions. And when I named the company... I still have this sheet of paper somewhere. I had all these different names I'd written down. Some of them were pretty lame, like WebLink and WebSoft and stuff. But I love this idea of Earth and connecting the Earth through a network. So I wrote down EarthLink on the list. I called like seven friends. I said, hey, I'm going to do a quick survey on you. EarthLink got the most check marks, and so that was the name of the company. <laughs> That's great. I like how rigorous that process was. <laughs> we hired a big consulting firm. We we did focus groups. No, it's not only did did I just name it, then I didn't bother to check if anyone else owned the trademark. So it was a couple of years later. We got a, a letter from a large cable company actually uh, back east. 
And uh, they said, hey, we own this name for some satellites that we're launching. I looked into it and I realized that they weren't actually going to use the name for a consumer service. So I called, I just cold called the uh, chief legal officer or something or general counsel. I'm like, well, this person probably knows what's going on here. So I, I called the main number asked to be transferred, reached this guy, explained the situation. I said, hey, I've got this small internet provider. I'm using this name. I'd love your permission to continue to use it. Will you be okay with that? And he's like, you know, I really appreciate you calling me. Most people just like file a lawsuit. I'm going to send you a letter right now. It says you have complete right to use the name. That was one of many near-death experiences that we had along the way. Okay, so you launched this small local ISP with the goal of turning it into something much larger. And clearly you succeeded. What was the first step on that journey? So there was a few things that, that I did right away. First is I, I focused on customer service, right? I focused on making it the provider I wish that I'd had originally, right? I put an ad out in the local computer magazine. Um, it was called Microtimes. It was where like hobbyists would buy like parts to computers and do like swap meets and different things like that. And it just said internet and had a picture I drew uh, that was sort of a riff on our logo and then had our phone number. And the phone started to ring and literally the first customer called to sign up and I said, okay, here, I'm going to send you the instructions and everything. I hung up and I realized I had no billing system. So I had to figure that out. (laughs) Uh, So there was a lot of figuring basic things out and doing things I had never done before. But by really focusing on great customer service and helping people get connected, we soon in LA became the number one choice. And I had this little problem, which was I couldn't expand outside of my zone of my little part of LA to serve people, let's say, in the San Fernando Valley or down in the South Bay. It was a toll charge to call our modem. So I figured out this kind of interesting hack, which is you could program a phone line to forward to another phone, another phone number. So if you could imagine this, I... (laughs) I, I went to the very edge of the calling radius of my first set of modems, and I uh, found friends that lived around that area, and I said, hey, I'm going to install a phone line in your house. I'm going to give you lifetime access to Earthlink for free. You're not going to ask me any questions. I'm just going to install this phone line. Just don't worry about it. And they're like, okay, whatever, fine. Or, or free Earthlink sounds great. And uh, I had the phone line installed and then I didn't have a phone installed. I just had the line brought to the edge of their house or like into the, you know, right outside their house. And then I would connect to that using kind of a jerry-rigged phone. Like have you ever seen the, the thing that the, they're climbing a telephone pole and they have these like red phones. So I had like a thing like that. I connected in to this phone line, got a dial tone, and then I programmed the phone to forward to my modem bank. So now what I would do is I would give people, my customers, that phone number, and it would go way out another 20 miles or whatever past where Earthlink was at the time. They could call in from out there to this phone number, and it would forward to Earthlink. And then I did this multiple times, leapfrog forwarding, and pretty soon I had the entire Southern California area covered with one giant bank of modems in my original office. And out of curiosity, do those friends who helped you out still have their lifetime Earthlink access? As far as I know, (laughs) it's been a long time, but I should actually check on that. 
Yeah, I mean, if they're still living in that random house in Northridge or something, but yeah, I should I should probably check. You'll definitely have to let us know what you find out. In the meantime, tell us what happened next. Am I right to guess that hacking the phone system with call forwarding wasn't a viable long-term solution? So <laughs> we, not you know, about a year later, we got a call from the telephone company saying like our telephone switches are malfunctioning because you appear to be doing something with this forwarding thing that was never designed. I was worried that they were going to shut us down, but they didn't. They, to their credit, uh, gave us, designed a whole feature for us to do exactly what I had hacked the system to do originally. That got us Southern California. But then how do we get out to the rest of the United States? And there was a, uh, a backbone company called UUNet that had built a bunch of the core infrastructure of, of the internet at that time. They were setting up modems to in, in a bunch of different markets, starting with like the NFL markets and then expanding to sell a wholesale service to Microsoft Network, uh, MSN. You know, it was a new kind of like an, an America Online competitor that Microsoft was starting. But these modems could be used to connect to the internet. So I went to them and, and convinced them to rent them to me. How'd you pay for all this? What was your business model? Um, now, at the time, we were selling internet access for $19.95 a month. And I had come up with this idea of flat rate. You know, it used to be that you would pay by the hour. I thought, well, people don't want to think about how long they're connecting for. Let's just make it flat rate and we'll figure out how to make money We'll figure out how to lower our costs and, and make money selling it for $20 a month, even if somebody uses it for 100 hours or 200 hours or, or just leaves their computer connected. But UUNet wanted to charge me like $2 an hour to use their modems. So I thought, well, you know, I'll probably get upside down here. If somebody uses 10 hours, I'm screwed, but I'm going to figure it out. So we did a wholesale deal with them to rent their network at this exorbitant rate. We had the $20 a month plan, and then we started advertising this, and it went completely crazy. Our costs went through the roof, and there's a whole other story of how we turned it into you know, a profitable enterprise. But you know, that's how we went nationwide uh, in those early days. Wait, I'm pretty sure we need to hear that story. How'd you solve the pricing problem? Competition. So uh, there was another internet provider like UUNet, but smaller, called PSINet. They were a backbone provider based uh, also. Both these companies were based in the like Washington, D.C. area, but had these nationwide networks. Went to them, said, listen, I want to do a deal with you. And instead of paying you by the hour, I'm going to pay you a flat rate per user per month. And I'm going to guarantee you a lot of usage so you can go build your network. And they had just gone public and they were struggling a bit. And I knew this deal would help their business. And, you know, they were, you know, pioneering company run by some really great people, but they needed, they needed a customer like Earthlink to really make their business work. And I knew I could drive tons and tons of demand. So I remember, I remember the meeting actually, where we went out to the East Coast and we sat in a room with them and we basically banged out a deal where somehow we convinced them to let us pay $8 a month flat rate, no matter how much the customer used. 
And so immediately I went from a you know negative gross margin to a 60% margin with no risk that I would go negative. Once that deal was in place with them, we went back to UUNet. We said, listen, we, you know, this is the deal. You're going to lose all of your business because we can just reroute all these customers. So they quickly acquiesced and did a similar deal. So we went from upside down to very profitable, uh, at least on a per customer basis overnight. And can you give us an idea of timing? This would have been what, 1995, 1996? Yeah, 95, 96. That means you would have been like, 24 or 25 years old at that point? What gave you the confidence to go out and build this national network and sign all these big partnership deals? I mean, nobody told me that you couldn't do it. So (laughs) why not? I mean, most of the things I did at the time, I didn't know how to do at the time I started to try to do them. I mean, just to give an example, we took the company public in 1997. It was about six months later that I really understood how the stock market really worked and how the banks really worked. And like, we just did it, you know? I mean, I'll admit all this because I think it's important to be humble and to know that you don't know, but at the same time to not let lack of knowledge be a limitation on ability. Like you can pull yourself through it. And even the internet, I mean, I, I freely admit now that in those early days, 1994, I didn't really understand how the internet worked. I mean, I, I didn't get it at its core, you know, and there's still a lot I I wish I knew, but I I understood it enough and I constantly asked questions. I had a dictionary on my desk with computer terms I would constantly refer to and I just went and did stuff. What other kinds of stuff did you do to get customers and grow the business? So we sent these discs out and you would get them in the mail. I mean, we dropped these things from helicopters. I mean, we just printed like millions, millions of them and distributed them. And you put it in your computer and then it would sign you up to a free trial, get your credit card and connect to the internet. Another thing happened around that time, sort of in the 98 timeframe, which is Steve Jobs came back to Apple and his now famous story. One of his first actions was to radically simplify what Apple was doing at the time, which is they'd sprawled into a zillion different form factors and things and they had no focus. So I got invited to come and meet him shortly after he came back and they wanted to talk to Earthlink about a partnership. So we got together in a conference room and the first thing I did was I said, hey, Steve, can you explain what your strategy for Apple is? And he got up on the whiteboard and he drew four boxes and he said, there's going to be a consumer product and a business product for a laptop and desktop, four products, that's it. And the consumer desktop product was going to be called the iMac. And the i, as we know, was for internet. And he wanted to have this computer be unique in that you would take it out of the box, you would plug in power, and then you would plug in a phone line and you would turn it on. And the first thing it would do would be sign you up to the internet. Because again, no, very few people were on the internet at the time, right? So you could assume that most people that got one of these didn't have an internet connection. He wanted to make Earthlink the default internet provider. I mean, it was obviously incredibly flattering. You know, we were recognized as sort of the Mac of ISPs, I think is a business headline around the time. Super customer service oriented and and great design and everything. And so we had this chance to align with Apple. They ended up investing in Earthlink and Earthlink became the default internet provider. So 
There were a lot of things like that around that time that really propelled the company forward to you know becoming as big as it did. So it sounds like partnerships were an important part of Earthlink's growth strategy, or was it just that one deal with Apple? I'll give you another example. Netscape had emerged 94, 95, that period, as the dominant web browser, first real commercial web browser. And I wanted to put a, remember the disk idea I talked about it, I wanted to be able to send disks out to people that they could just put in their computer and get connected. And I needed a web browser for that. So I went to Netscape and I said, hey, I'm going to, they were giving away for free at the time. I said, I'm going to do a deal where I pay you when somebody signs up. I can distribute these as much as I want and I'll pay you for every customer that signs up to Earthlink and then stays on for a month. Okay. They said, wow, that sounds like a great idea. We can make some money from this thing. Let's do it. Do you want to drop the contract? They said, sure. So I went to my like family lawyer and he drew up a three-page contract which just said very simply what our rights were and everything. They signed it. We started working. And a few months later, Jim Barksdale had come in as CEO. It's a legendary um, CEO. He'd been CIO of uh, FedEx and just a really brilliant guy. And the first thing he did was say, wait a minute, why are we giving this thing away? This We've got the best software in the world. Everybody wants this. Let's charge for it. And they had this little problem, which they'd done a deal with this tiny company nobody had ever heard of called Earthlink that gave us the right to distribute Netscape unlimited for free and only pay when the person actually connected to use it. So as a result, I was out cutting all these deals all over the place with book publishers and magazine publishers to put these discs in their publications. And Netscape, you know, really couldn't stop it. And um I remember they tried to get out of the deal. They said, what would it take? I told them $100 million. <laughs> anyway, it was they ended up being an amazing partner over the years. But, you know, there were little things like that that ended up being the building blocks to making Earthlink the dominant independent internet provider. And, you know, it took many years, again, many near-death experiences to get there. But you're kind of like a, a failure many, many times before you're a success. You mentioned having many near-death experiences. What other kinds of failures and setbacks did you have to deal with and how'd you overcome them? I think as an entrepreneur, what I'm most proud of with Earthlink is that I persevered through endless challenges. And, you know, a time we were in the office, we were bursting at the seams. We had employees in the hallways, you know, with desks. We couldn't fit everyone. We were just taxing every piece of infrastructure we had to the point where our connection to the electrical grid blew up, like literally exploded. And we, the whole building lost power. We were completely dark and we went and rented a generator that was used on movie sets to power, you know, a small town. (laughs) And we hooked it up to the building diesel generator. And we, within a few hours and we were back up and running And we were running on that generator for like a month because the power company had to massively upgrade our service, which was a huge deal. Or the time when the file that contained all of our customer data, usernames, passwords, and everything became corrupted and like literally locked and we couldn't log anyone in. Or we had a hard stop at 64,000 users. We Once we got to 64,000 users, the table that we were using to store all of our customer data was going to blow up. And we were approaching this and we had to completely re-engineer the system. You know, there were just 
moments like that, trying to take the company public in 1996, originally in the summer, starting the roadshow in New York, there to brief the bankers, the sales team to sell our stock on the roadshow. And the NASDAQ tanked and we had to pull the IPO, go back to California empty handed. We were running out of money. And we had to raise an emergency round of funding, and which we did, thankfully, to hold the company over. And then finally in late 96, and then you know January 97, taking the company public. I think the only other company to go public in that quarter of 97 was Amazon. So I think being an entrepreneur is, is really summed up in that one word, perseverance. And along those lines, Earthlink definitely wasn't the only company trying to grow the reach of the internet, right? What was it like battling other companies during the early ISP wars? I'm specifically thinking AOL, they had to be trying to slow you down, right? Look, I mean, there was just a ton of innovation happening at the time, but, you know, scale internet providers, there weren't a lot. There were online services like AOL, Prodigy, and CompuServe that were really like walled gardens of their own, right? Their own little internets. And I was really interested in providing people access to the open, uncensored, kind of free wild west of the internet and everything that, you know, all the possibilities that it had. So with great customer service, we just grew and grew. And then we started to acquire a lot of the, our early competitors. And, you know, to the point where even the one, not the original one I had, but, but the largest commercial internet provider, which was the second call that I had made uh, to try to find a partner in those early days, we acquired them and and then there was AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe still, but it was like Disneyland versus, you know, downtown Manhattan, <laughs> the open laissez-faire world of the internet versus a closed sort of vertically integrated society and the former one. For better and for worse, Sky's laissez-faire version of the internet definitely won. It's the internet we know and use today, thanks in no small part to the infrastructure he helped create for Earthlink's millions of subscribers. In fact, it's a pretty impressive feat when you consider that right before Sky decided to launch Earthlink, he had been told by his first ISP that everyone who was going to use the internet already had an account. Clearly, that didn't turn out to be true. And Earthlink still exists today, though it appears to be as much a holding company as anything else, with a lot of its growth in the early 2000s and since coming from acquisitions. Most of that happened after Sky moved on to other things. That was more after my time. I was there through 1999 on a day-to-day -day basis, and then I went and started a, an incubator with a friend who was running all of Disney's internet businesses at the time. And I stayed on the board and as chairman for many years. But just as Earthlink was sort of a jumping off point for the internet, for me, it was the front door of everything else that I wanted to do in technology and a great early experience. I, in 2000, got this thing called 802.11b, which was a, a wireless protocol now known as Wi-Fi. And I had a home and I had this network that I put in so that I could have my laptop connected to the internet as I moved around. And I quickly realized, you know, I had another aha moment. This is, wow, we're going to put the internet into the air. Uh, it's not going to be a thing that you need to be chained to a wire in order to use, which was, again, something we totally take for granted, but was a radical idea at the time. That led to starting Boingo, 
And the incubator we started, we also uh, founded a company called Jamdat, which is the first big mobile games company, which we later took public and sold to Electronic Arts and a bunch of other private companies. And it's fascinating to me to see back to the kind of electricity analogy, everything that we're doing with technology and, and information technology specifically now, it all started with getting people to connect and I think Earthlink helped put probably in the order of you know 10% of the United States population online or something like that. I mean, it's very cool. I run into people all the time that still have their Earthlink email address. It's like kind of retro cool now. It's like driving a classic Porsche or like a Willy Jeep or something like that, uh, which is neat. I'm not sure I'm convinced that having an old Earthlink email address is actually as cool as driving a classic Porsche. But in general, I can respect Sky's overall feeling of accomplishment in helping solve the problem he first struggled with while trying to connect his computer to the internet in the early 1990s. After all, whether you were an early Earthlink subscriber in Southern California back in 1995, or if you have no idea what an ISP is, I'm guessing you didn't spend a second thinking about how you were going to connect to the internet before you started listening to this podcast. And for that, you owe at least a little bit of thanks to Sky Dayton and Earthlink. I hope you enjoyed hearing his story. If you did, please take a moment to let us know by leaving a review for Webmasters in your podcasting app of choice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe so you always get the newest episodes as soon as they're released. I want to thank Sky Dayton for spending the time with me to share his story. You can keep up with all the cool things he's doing now by following him on Twitter. He's at Sky Dayton. This podcast is on Twitter too. If you've got something you'd like to share, we're at Webmasters Pod, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinnan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. You can also find lots of articles I create about startups and entrepreneurship on medium.com just by searching my name over there. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. Thank you to our sponsor, Latonas, for all their amazing support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to visit latonas.com. And if you're interested in listening to another episode of Webmasters, check out our back catalog. We've got lots of great shows that you can find inside your podcast app. Or if you're all caught up, don't worry, because we've got a new episode coming soon. But for now, well, I guess it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. So, Sky, I got to say, I was looking over all the things you've done and built, and it seems like everything you touch turns to gold. Is there anything you've screwed up? maybe give the rest of us mere mortals some hope? I remember we, at the incubator, we, we started a company called business.com that my partner Jake was running. And uh, now if we get this business.com domain name, that's really the shit. Like if we could own that. So we called up the guy that owned it and he he wanted some exorbitant price. We thought about it and we thought about, it. You, know, you know what, let's do it. So we paid him seven and a half million dollars for this domain name. And uh, we kind of became like a poster child for internet excess when the dot-com bubble burst, you know, in 2001, 2002, lots of articles about these idiots who paid seven hours for this domain name, yada, yada, yada. And we're just like, wow, man, we, 
do we screw up here? I mean, we're actually building a real business. I mean, that, that was the interesting thing. It had nothing to do with the domain, but we, we ended up selling that business for, I don't know, almost $400 million. So it sounds like the answer is no. Apparently, you even managed to sell your screw-ups for $400 million. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's impressive. 